everyone and welcome to another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite podcast. It's Hannah Squire here today and I'm very excited to be talking to the curatorial team at Leighton House, Hannah Lund and Daniel Robbins. Daniel Robbins is the senior curator of two of London's most significant house museums, Leighton House and Sanborn House. He was responsible for the award-winning project to restore the historic interiors of Leighton House, completed between 2008 and 2010. And he's also successfully led the Hidden Gem to National Treasure development focused on the additions made to the building in the 20th century recently. Formerly with Glasgow Museums, he has organised many exhibitions and contributed numerous catalogues and publications around 19th century art, architecture and design. Daniel is an accredited lecturer for the Art Society and has lectured across the UK and internationally, including at the Frick in New York and the Ponce Museum in Puerto Rico, where Leighton's celebrated Flaming June can be found. I actually really love Flaming June and I saw her in the flesh at Leighton House a few years ago for the first time and was just completely overwhelmed by it. So that was one of my first visits to Leighton House. Um, and we're also today joined by Hannah Lund, who's the assistant curator at Leighton House and Sanborn House. Um, and she's currently focused on the future exhibition programme and the interpretation of both historic homes. Hannah joined the museum full time in 2018 to work on a project to rationalise the reserve collection. And between 2019 and 2022, she was responsible for developing displays and interpretation as part of the museum's capital project, Hidden Gem to National Treasure. Hannah studied history of art at Edinburgh University, completing a research master's in British material culture in 2017. Aside from artist studio houses, her research interests include horse-drawn carriages, Wedgwood and Jacobite material culture. Wow, that's a lot of ground to cover, Hannah. And um, hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for joining us both today for this episode. And to start off, um, could you introduce Leighton House to us for people that maybe haven't visited before, don't know of the museum. Tell us a bit about who Leighton was as an artist, his style, his inspirations, as well as um, his home and studio. Well, so Frederick Leighton was really the preeminent artist of his age. He was born in 1830, dying in 1896. He served as the president of the Royal Academy for 18 years. And whatever people thought of him as a painter, of which there were always some mixed reviews, he was sort of universally well regarded for his work he did and how effective he was as the Academy's president and, and changing perceptions of what artists could be or should be in their place in society. Um, and very much part of that was the house that he created. So he began work on it in the mid 1860s and for the subsequent 30 years, it remained a constant preoccupation for him, a project that he devoted endless time and, and resources to uh, achieving. So it was a whole series of, of different extensions and embellishments made to his original house. Um, really with the combined thought of creating obviously a working studio space so all the pictures of his mature career were, were painted in his studio upstairs um, as a space in which he could entertain um, a space in which he could display his collections and and we've been doing a lot of work through the recent project around those collections and trying to reinstate and re-establish them um, and and combined these things really did did suggest 
the way that an artist could live and should live and what it meant to be an artist. And so he was very keen, as many of his contemporaries were, who also built studio houses to share the environment, to make that environment kind of semi-public and for it to be photographed and written about very extensively. Um, and so the house has been a museum almost since he died. So um, it's certainly since 1900. But like all Victorian things, it went through a very, uh, its fortunes through the 20th century were far from kind of consistent and, and stable. So it was bomb damaged in the Second World War. And when it was um, made usable again, that was only by not trying to recreate at all how it had been, but simply to, to so a lot of the walls were whitewashed and fluorescent lights were hung from the ceilings and the floors were all stripped and it was kind of made as neutral an environment as it could be. And so it's been a very long process, which started really in the 1980s to restore the fabric, recover the interiors and, and reinstate the collections. And so the project we've just, Done has taken that to a new, a new level. Actually, I just thought, Danny, with you speaking um, of a question that's not on the list, but um, it really struck me because I used to work for the National Trust as a curator, and how you get that balance between it being a museum and also a home. And I just wondered if you talk a bit more to that because you talked about kind of wanting to reinstate those interiors. But how do you, um, yeah, create that balance? Well, so through the twentieth century, much of the twentieth century, that had been exactly the kind of issue that uh, had been wrestled with because it had lost all its original contents and for much of that period it was presented as a series of spaces and the Arab Hall obviously was always going to be a, a kind of spectacular interior in its own right as it were but it was presented as a series of spaces into which display cases and more conventional museum displays were were introduced and it was really functioning as a picture gallery and the idea of it as a domestic environment or as a space where you could actually imagine somebody living um, had more or less entirely been lost and some of the rooms, so the entrance hall, which we've recovered in the recent project, the winter studio, even his bedroom um, were not uh, in any way presented as they had been and his bedroom was an office so it wasn't even accessible to the public so it was quite kind of partial and and very incomplete presentation of the house um, and that sort of shifted from that 1980s was the first attempt to try and reinstate decoratively reinstate the interiors um, and it all gathered pace again from the previous phase of restoration, which was 2008 to 10, which was called Closer to Home and was about trying to quite decisively uh, recreate the idea of the house as a place, as a domestic environment, and to, at the very least, make it clear what the function of each of the rooms was by the way they were presented. Um, and uh, to lose the kind of last remnants of the kind of museum-like uh, presentation of the of the collection and the interiors. Um, and I, we maybe come on to that, but the work we, Hannah and I did over the period of the closure and lockdown and so on was 
was to definitely take that further, both um, in terms of the furnishings of the interiors, but also in the uh, what's hanging on the walls, the collections itself. Because that's the other point that is pretty much throughout the 20th century, the whole emphasis was on trying to establish a collection of Leighton's own paintings, a representative collection that could tell the story of him as an artist. And we very much now change that emphasis to being much more focused on bringing back the collections that uh, he assembled because they are in a way much more revealing of him and his interests and what informed his art than, um, than his, the pictures that he produced where, and in fact, when he lived here, there were very few of his pictures displayed in the house. Those that were displayed were all the landscape sketches, which were in his studio. But other than that, other than a couple of others, um, his work wasn't the dominant, um, by any means, the dominant uh, thing within the house. Brilliant, thank you. And talking of those interests and influences, um, I know that you both look after Lindley Sanborn's home, which is also now a museum and stands in the same neighbourhood. So could you tell us a bit more about who were the Holland Park Circle, who was part of Leighton's artistic literary circle, and how does yeah how does he fit within the Victorian sort of London art world? And so the Holland Park Circle was really a kind of community of artists, studio houses that grew up around Holland Park in, in Kensington in, in the late 19th century. And the start of that was really um, Little Holland House, which was a house on um, the, the Holland estate. And that was leased to a family called the Princep family in the 1850s on the recommendation of, of their friend, George Frederick Watts, the, the painter and sculptor. And so when the princeps moved into Little Holland House, um, which was quite sort of, it's described as um, uh, quite a ramshackle, um, almost like a farmhouse and um, with a very big garden on, on the Holland estate. Um, and when the princep family um, moved in, um, Watts actually moved in with them and became a sort of permanent artist in residence for the next uh, 20 years or so. And so with what's installed in Little Holland House and, and the Princep family who were also moved in kind of artistic circles, they were an Anglo-Indian um, family and Sarah Princep became something of a kind of society hostess. Um, and Little Holland House became a, a meeting place for many of the, the leading um, artists of the day and Leighton. Um, often went there, and um, Burton Jones, I think, recovered from, from an illness there for a period. So it became this kind of artistic hub around um, Holland Park. And uh, the Holland Estate, um, they actually leased Little Holland House because um, they needed to, to raise money. Um, and they also began sort of selling off land um, from the 1860s onwards. So initially some plots became available on Holland Park Road and one of those was purchased by um, Val Princep, who was the son of Sarah Princep and had grown up in that artistic atmosphere at Little Holland House. Um, and he began um, to build his own studio house on Holland Park Road. And he was then closely followed by, by Leighton, who um, on probably on Watts's recommendation, um, actually came across the, the plot on Holland Park Road and, and purchased that and began to build his own studio home. So the presence of, of those artists and, and Little Holland House um, really gave 
began to give the area something of an artistic reputation in, in the 1860s. Um, but the real sort of turning point was actually came with the, the demolition of uh, Little Holland House in the 1870s, which was um, demolished to make way for Melbury Road and to allow more plots um, to be sold. Um, and many of those plots were taken by artists. So Watts, who'd been displaced from Little Holland House, began to build his own studio home on, on Melbury Road. Um, and there were many other artists that, that moved in, including um, Colin Hunter, Luke Files, the Thornycroft family of sculptors, Marcus Stone, and the architect William Burgess. So the area really became a kind of enclave of, of artists and um, that also, it was one of several kind of little groupings of artists around Kensington and Kensington really became known um, as one of the kind of artistic centres of, of London. Um, and so that was around the time that, that Lindley Sanborn moved into his home on 18 Stafford Terrace, um, which was a terrace house. It wasn't a purpose-built artist studio house like, like Leighton House, but he moved in and he turned it into his kind of version of an artist studio house, very much um, inspired by um, the houses of, of the artists on Melbourne Road and, and Holland Park Road. And um, uh, the Sanborn family became friendly with um, many of those artists, including in particular um, Luke Files, um, who was godfather to, to Roy Sanborn. Um, and so he would have been aware of, of these much grander artist studio houses and, and used those examples to kind of inform um, his own his own house. Brilliant, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, and could you both tell us a bit more about the collection itself? And are there any particular pieces that really inspire you? At Sanborn House or generally? Um, both, actually, Leighton and Sanborn. Well, so the great, the great thing of having both of these houses is um, kind of what they have in common and, and what separates them. So, so as Hannah was saying, I mean, it's, it's at one extreme, you have Leighton House, which is an entirely bespoke kind of curated environment by Leighton and with him rising to be the president of the Royal Academy, he's at the absolute sort of pinnacle of the artistic hierarchy. And then at Stafford Terrace with Sanborn House, you have um, an illustrator, a black and white artist who um, uh, has the ambition to create a similar kind of environment but on a much more modest budget and constrained by the fact that his house is just a conventional terraced home. And, and, and so the contrast between those two um, is very interesting. And it's also very useful because of the fact of Leighton House having lost all its original contents, that in some ways Sanborn having basically kept all its original contents um, allows a kind of sense of the sort of density of objects and combination of objects and pattern and colour and so on that, that helps understand some, uh, the understanding of what Leighton House was like uh, in its original, in its original form when all of its objects were still, um, were still here. And in terms of favourite objects, uh, so, um, <laughs> We've been doing various things to commission pieces of, of, of furniture and objects, but something that I've begun to look at in a new light is a portrait by Leighton of his father, 
and um, made when he's a young, a young man. And we recently did a podcast with the art firm, Meet Me at the Museum, where the two uh, people who are meeting at the museum and discovering it together were young musicians and artists. And they recognised immediately what they described as the dad look in the portrait of Leighton's father, um, which was absolutely spot on in that when Leighton's father, um, when Leighton announced he wanted to be an artist at the age of 16, his father was not encouraging the idea, but then relented and, um, and said he could be an artist as long as he was going to be an eminent one. Um, so it's just interesting that the, the, the story of his, his upbringing, which was unusual anyway, in that he, he was taken for the sake of the, his mother's health with his two sisters to live on the continent really from about the age of 11 onwards and didn't return to this country until he was in his late 20s on a, any kind of permanent basis. So, so um, that gives us a window into that family uh, dynamic and, um, and Leighton's first years and informative years as an artist, which were all on the continent. And, and certainly when he returned to this country, that was, if not held against him, it was kind of pointed out that he, he clearly had been trained on the continent. And, um, and that was one of the things that made him stand apart from his pre-Raphaelite and other, and other contemporaries. Definitely, yeah. No pressure from his dad then to become an eminent artist. Luckily, he did. Um, yeah, it, it just struck me actually. I've just been recording another podcast episode about Maurice Bartali Stillman, who spent a lot of time in Italy um, as well. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear about those kind of continental connections. And Hannah, can I ask you? I know it's a really hard question to answer, but do you have any favourite pieces um, in the collections? Uh, so, I'll, I'll go with the Sambon thing for the case of, um, for the sake of balance. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I think one of my favourite things there is there's um, there's actually two of these, but one that's particularly spectacular. It's a fan um, that um, each leaf has an artwork and a signature on by a different artist. So it's made out of, I think, bamboo. I can't remember. <laughs> it's potentially made out of bamboo, but I think each leaf and um, Sanborn would have sent to a particular artist with a little letter saying, do you mind? Um, doing something for for my and he called it his wife's fan. I think he had the idea it was going to be a present for her. Um, and so each um, leaf of the fan has this really beautiful little illustration from one of the sort of leading names of the Victorian art world. And together it's this really wonderful picture, I think, of all the different artists that were working in London at the time and the sort of people that Sanborn would have come across at various events and, and things like that and um, each one is is also so different but also this really tiny lovely snapshot of that particular artist's style. Um, I think it's interesting as well to compare it to Lawrence Armitadema in his studio house. He had this room of panels where he had these quite large panels that went all the way around the room and each one of those he had a painting on by by again one of the leading sort of Victorian artists and Leighton um, contributed one as did many of um, the same artists that, that produced 
paintings for uh, or drawings for, for Sanborn's fan, but it's an interesting, um, yeah, different budgets and different scales in terms of studio houses, but this same idea of, of kind of showing how you were associated with all these other artists. Definitely, thank you. And we're talking about kind of Sanborn houses well, pretty much uh, having, oh, sorry. I thought it was some alternative favourites. <laughs> yes, no, go for it, go for it, we'll edit it in, that's perfect, go for it. Which would be um, the colour sketch that we acquired, I think in 2012, uh, for Leighton's debut painting, the uh, large processional picture um, called Chimabui's Celebrated Madonna's Carriage in Procession Through the Streets of Florence. And, and um, having that colour sketch is so significant because it was the painting of that work that was really so significant. It was Leighton's debut picture at the Royal Academy and was immediately purchased by Queen Victoria. And he was seen in the wake of that patronage as being this great hope for, for British art, partly, I have to say, because people seized on him as not being a pre-Raphaelite, and that was seen as a very good thing. Um, and, and for years afterwards, I mean, almost for the rest of his life, reference was always made back to the impact that that painting had when it was first shown and um, and the impact uh, that it had uh, in establishing Leighton um, can't be underestimated. So to have that colour sketch, which Leighton in his very systematic way of working always produced as part of the process before embarking on the, the canvas itself. So to have that, which in itself is a beautiful, uh, beautiful painting, beautiful little thing, but it's so significant in, in our ability to kind of tell the story of where he came from and, and the basis on which his career was founded. Mm. Yeah, I tend to actually prefer drawings and sketches and studies because they really do share that artist process. And it was so lovely when I recently came to Leighton House and um, Hannah showed us around to kind of see the number of drawings. I know they're copies because of light levels to have them on display, but how many you have in your collection, it's fabulous. And actually, Daniel, that was a really wonderful segue for me for our next question. Talking about that acquisition, um, I know that you're um, also campaigning at Leighton House to raise money for a painting in my studio by Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema to become part of the collection at Leighton House again. So kind of more broadly, what are your future acquisition goals? Which other objects or artworks would you like to acquire that can tell us more about the story of Leighton? Well, so as I said, the, the entire collection that Leighton had assembled was all sold immediately after his death in 1896. And um, with a very limited number of uh, exceptions, that collection um, is entirely dispersed. Um, but we have been progressing, researching where those things may be and where possible trying to bring them back because one of the beauties of the house being as well known as it was in Leighton's day and so often written about and photographed and described that you can pretty much determine where the collection was displayed and how it was displayed. So it is possible to very faithfully recreate it um, and hang the objects as Leighton had elected to hang them in the first, first place. Um, so I'll say a little bit about the uh, approaches to that. And then Hannah, um, who did a lot of the, uh, spent a lot of time <laughs> looking for things and uh, some of the near misses and 
close calls and successes that we've had. So, but broadly, the, the approach has been that, that we have to really consider every option in trying to bring back to life, as it were, to re recreate the interiors that Leighton left. Um, because if we were to purely hold out for finding the object in every instance, it's a sort of impossible task, much easier with pictures, obviously, than, it, than the decorative art collections that he had through and furnishings that he had through the house. So that means we've looked at uh, commissions, and so we uh, commissioned these two wonderful new bookcases, which are very close facsimiles of the bookcases that were designed by Leighton and his architect to sit in the studio, and that follows um, uh, doing the same exercise with the sideboard in the dining room, um, all of which is about trying to show that the conception of the house extended to its furnishings in its, uh, from Leighton and his architect's uh, perspective. So there's the commissions, there's objects that were assembled through the 20th century that have been used as furnishings for the house and of course the, the, the Leighton collection itself. And then there have been the new acquisitions which are trying to as closely as possible match the descriptions of photographs and where possible to actually identify the real um, as it were the real thing but i'll hand over to, to hannah to say more about some of the things we were looking have been looking for and have found and um and what we sort of learned through the process of mm -hmm. trying to find uh uh, identify the original contents of the house and, and recreate that those displays. Yes, as Daniel was saying, that the focus was very much um, more on the the decorative arts this time around rather than painting. So on textiles, carpets, furniture, um, and um, Leighton had a, a huge collection of textiles. When you look at images of the house, they sort of appear everywhere, draped across chairs, um, hanging over. Um, Japanese screens um, hung on the walls. And so trying to introduce a sense of that back into the interiors was one of the big sort of ambitions of, of the latest acquisitions project. And um, just to pick out one of the pieces we acquired as a result of that, we bought a um, Banya Luca applique hanging, um, which would have been originally used as a prayer carpet um, Leighton's, um, Leighton's one appears in um, images of his studio um, hanging on, on the wall, and it's also described as being in that space and appears in a sale catalogue which was produced um, when his collection was sold after his death. So we have quite a good um, record of, of what Leighton's um, example actually looked like. And we also have the advantage that, that Leighton's own um, Banya Luca textile is actually now in um, the collection of Glasgow Museum, so we can see the original piece, and so we were therefore uh, able to, to look for a really good match to that particular example, and thanks to um, Meg Andrews, who's a textile um, expert that we've been working with, we're able to identify one that is a very good match to, to Leighton's original one and have reinstated that in the studio hanging on the wall uh, in the apps of, of his studio in its original location. And it's interesting whenever you introduce something back into the interiors, you see immediately how it works with all the other colours in the space. So it's this very 
um, beautiful kind of mossy green with then applique um, on top of that in, in sort of reds and whites and also gold threads. And it, it looks really beautiful against the kind of terracotta color of the studio walls. Uh, another sort of near miss, um, <laughs> so as well as successes, there's also been lots of um, frustrating examples, one of which is very prominently in the staircase hall at Leighton House and in kind of all of the images from Leighton's period, there's this copper, or it's described as copper, but I actually think it was brass, um, Indian jardinaire, which was on this stand right in the center of the space and it often has a palm coming out of it in, in photos. Um, so it was really in the center of the space the minute you walk through the door. So it's quite an important object within the interiors. Um, and it was actually a gift to Leighton from his next door neighbor, um, Val Princep, and he bought it back from India. And I think he actually bought back several examples and gave them to a couple of his neighbors, because you can also see a similar, uh, a similar jardinet in um, images of Watts' studio and also Marcus Stone. So I think he probably brought these back as, as gifts for his um, artist friends. After much searching, um, managed to find um, one that had sold about a year ago in an auction house in um, rural Ireland for, I think, less than 100 euros. And contacted the auction house and realised it actually hadn't sold in that auction. And um, unfortunately, after much searching, they were unable to locate exactly what happened to it. It was a very frustrating <laughs> nearness. <laughs> But it shows they do exist. Um, so we're hopeful that at some point one will one will turn up. But in some cases, Leighton had something that is incredibly unique and, and with much searching we've been able to establish was probably a one-off um, or some um, either something that he had specially um, commissioned or something that was maybe a historic piece of furniture that he had adapted or had been adapted in the Victorian era. Um, and so considering there's only one of them to find, we're unlikely to, to find it. And so a decision is then taken to commission um, uh, essentially a replica piece of furniture, um, which can fill that place. And, and one example of that um, is a pair of green Windsor chairs, which um, appear in images of the, the silk room and are also described as being in that space. We also have um, these beautiful um, presentation drawings um, that were done of some of the key interiors by Leighton's architect, George Aitchison, and they're really helpful records because they're in colour um, and they show these green Windsor chairs sitting against the, the green silk of the silk room. And um, after much searching, green Windsor chairs are just not a thing. I think they're described in the catalogue as being Liberty chairs. But they're unusual in two counts. First, because they're, they're painted green, which I don't think was something that was at all commonly done. And the other thing is that the back splat on the chair is actually upside down, which was probably a sort of idiosyncrasy of a particular maker or actually even an error in creating the chair. And so we had those um, replicated by um, a contemporary Windsor chair maker, Nigel Briggs, and installed in the space. But again, seeing those against the, the green silk and with all the other furniture in, in the silk room, it really adds a new dimension to kind of our understanding of, of the space. And I think that's been the case with all the 
new acquisitions, when you introduce something new, it sort of subtly changes the atmosphere of the, the whole space and gives you an added insight into what Leighton and HSM were trying to achieve with the interiors. Um, but it's very much an ongoing, ongoing project. And I think the thing which we were very keen to avoid doing, which would have been an option, would be to just look for things of the period that sort of could fit. And um, in, in the 20th century, there had been various loans from V&A and elsewhere of exactly, of exactly that. And, and it seemed for, for this to sort of be me more meaningful and to give more of a sense of, because Leighton, of course, himself was bringing his own, very definitely his own eye and his own uh, interests to bear on all of this, that, that the whole point was to try and be faithful to that and to recreate it as, as accurately as we, we possibly can. And it is a sort of never-ending process, but I think we've now got a kind of structure or a framework that makes sense to just, and as Hannah absolutely says, that each time we do add something, it, it you really feel the feel and can see the difference, and uh, sometimes more subtly, and sometimes it makes a, a bigger a bigger statement. But uh, and it also just diversifies the collection and the range of objects that there are to see away from from, as I was describing, the kind of sense of these being empty rooms with paintings just kind of quite randomly hanging within them. Um, so yeah, it's been a very, very interesting and sometimes frustrating because I think if, if we'd had the resource, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years of systematically looking for matches to um, objects in the house, obviously we would have Got much further subject to costs and <laughs> all of those. Um, and so the Armatadima picture, which we're now uh, hopefully going to be able to secure, is you know a really big step uh, along this road. Leighton built the silk room uh, right at the end of his life on the first floor of the house, and the reason given was to display works that he had been given by his contemporaries, and that's where this Armatadima hung. So it was given to him in exchange for a, uh, a work that Leighton contributed to the hall of panels that, uh, that Hannah was describing at Tadema's house. And because it's called In My Studio and is a, a very faithful uh, representation of part of uh, Tadema's studio in St John's Wood, and the fact that Tadema gave that work to Leighton has a particular significance because these are really the two artists who were most associated with their studio houses and the environments that they'd created. And so it kind of says, it sums up in a way, it says, says so much about the whole phenomenon of artists and celebrity and studio houses and the way this all kind of worked. So, so we're very keen to, <laughs> to bring it back and, and, Hang it on a wall that Hannah and I were talking about the other day. I mean, is is now getting pretty complete in reinstating what was there uh, in Nathan's day, which is you know um, great to see. Thank you both so much. It's really fascinating to hear how you're piecing that puzzle back together, and I think really useful for everyone to get a sense of 
um, yeah, the policies that you're taking and how you're approaching it. So yeah, brilliant, sounds amazing. You both actually already started answering this question, but um, do you explain the kind of global influences and inspiration at Leighton in the artworks and the collection, but also actually with you talking about Sanborn's house as well, I suppose with the aesthetic interior there, the house beautiful, there's also kind of global influences or inspiration on both collections, so yes. Well, so just to start on that, I mean, the, the, the loss of the contents of the house, um, I think for a long time distorted this picture because what what remained and remained very sort of memorably was the aeropole component mm. and that would sort of suggest that that was the overwhelming interest of Leighton's life as a collector or more generally that he sort of had, had, had created that space in order to play out some kind of fantasy of of the east as it were and and partly what we've been keen to do is to, to reinstate things that show more of the variety and eclectic nature of what Leighton actually collected and how he combined things. So, for example, in the Arab Hall, when he was, as shown in the photographs, was a Japanese folding screen plonked in the, the middle of it. So there wasn't you know, the sort of purist idea um, wasn't uh, uh, played out fully through through these spaces. So, so, but yes, it was a much more uh, diverse collection than than simply being left to the Arapal would suggest. So, and Hannah may say more about um, about that kind of range of things, particularly of, of the Far Eastern. Um, objects which were very underrepresented and still are pretty underrepresented mm -hmm. but could be were much more present. So see in addition to um, lots of ceramics from the Middle East and North Africa you can also tell from the photos in the catalogue that Leighton had a huge number of um, ceramics from um, Japan and China as well um, and there's a nice sort of little remnant of this in the fireplace in the model's entrance to Leighton Studio, which has these um, uh, Chinese export ceramics actually set into the fireplace. And I think that's one of the few areas in which that kind of influence has survived within the fabric of, of the house. Um, but also, as Daniel was saying, um, there were, I think, five um, quite large screens on display throughout the house and in particular in the studio there was a very large Japanese um, screen with cranes on which appears in um, Leighton's painting cherries and in, in the background. Um, which Amit had bought from the sale was that? Yes so Amit actually bought this screen from the sale and uh, there's a set of images of Amit house which show the screen as being in the dining room but throughout the house, you see Leighton's combining objects from across the world based on their aesthetics. So I think that was very much what he was interested in when he was collecting things. He didn't have a kind of academic interest as a collector. It was very much about um, how um, the objects looked and how they could be combined um, to create a, a really unique interior. I think a good example of this is in the um, staircase hall, he had two um, Chinese uh, 
Cloisonne enamel panels, which had calligraphy on them. They have turquoise um, enamel in the, the background and black um, calligraphy running down both panels. Um, and I was actually able to, again, this is another near miss, these sold at auction in Hong Kong about 10 years ago, I think. Um, we've been unable to, to trace them, but um, Leighton had those hanging in the staircase hall um, and obviously put them there because they connected to the turquoise tiles of the staircase hall and also to all of the um, Arabic calligraphy um, in the staircase hall and, and the Arab hall. So he was seeing those as aesthetically going with the rest of the ceramics in, in the interiors, even though they came from a completely different culture um, that wasn't what um, kind of interested him or informed his decisions around what he collected or how he displayed um, objects in his in his home. Brilliant, thank you. And um, your recent ambi ambitious project, Hidden Gem to National Treasure, has transformed the museum and the visitor experience at Leighton. I visited recently and it's wonderful. Um, can you explain the changes, the new displays, facilities, galleries, and why was this project important for the museum to undertake now? Well, so between 2008 to 10, we did, as, as we referred to, a previous phase of restoration, which was focused on the historic house itself. And that, even then, there was the idea of a third phase, which would complete the restoration of the house and allow it to fulfil its potential, if you like. And that was two spaces at the east end of the building, which had been added once it had already become a museum. So the first of those was built, funded by a local family called Perrin at the end of the 1920s as a memorial to their daughter, who, who had been an artist and had died in the Spanish flu. Uh, epidemic. Um, and then uh, after the war, that space on the ground floor had been converted into the children's library in Kensington and to service that library, what had been outdoor space beneath Leighton's winter studio was infilled, uh, bricked in to form uh, toilets and a little kitchen and a mezzanine containing the reserve collection store. So, so for a long time, there was the awareness that those spaces were very underutilized and really in a poor state and not in particularly in the post-war infill, um, just of a very poor quality and were really detracting from the uh, the house altogether, the site altogether. So the idea was that all of the functions that were carrying on in the house itself, so the loos, the shop, the reception, catering largely when catered events happened, the historic house was carrying the brunt of that activity, when in fact, if we could refurbish these spaces at the east end of the building and augment those spaces, then all of those functions could be moved into that wing and it could almost become a buffer that would allow the house to be fully restored um, and presented complete. So the entrance hall and the winter studio, um, which previously had contained the shop and reception, and in the case of the winter studio, had been a sort of funny annex to the exhibition space, um, are now fully integrated back into the house. I don't know, Hannah may want to say something about how we went about those two spaces and, um, and reinstating them. So the entrance hall and the winter studio were kind of as 
as Daniel was saying, the two last spaces from the historic house that hadn't been fully kind of restored and integrated into, into the rest of the house. And um, they're also the two spaces that we have no visual record of. There are lots of descriptions of, of Leighton's home um, from when he lived there. Um, and those were very helpful in piecing together the spaces, but obviously it's much more of a challenge if, if you don't have um, visual images of them. With the entrance hall, the key feature of the space was a painting um, from the studio of Domenico Tintoretto of a doge. And um, this is actually one of the few um, objects from Leighton's collection that never left Leighton House. So it was purchased at um, the sale after his death by um, Emily Barrington, um, who was really sort of the, the founder of, of Leighton House Museum and, and looked after it for the first sort of 20 years of it becoming a museum. And so as part of the restoration project, we reinstated that um, painting into its original uh, location in the entrance hall previously it had been on display in the, the library. Um, and also using those descriptions, um, recreated the kind of furnishings and the atmosphere of the space. So it was, the entrance hall was described as being very kind of monochrome in tone, having chocolate coloured walls and being quite a restrained space in terms of colour and decoration so that when you move into the, the staircase hall you really get the full impact of those um, turquoise tiles and all the objects from Lane's collection that he displayed there. Um, so in the same way that the exterior of the house is, is in a way surprisingly plain, I think the entrance hall was meant to be part of that experience. So reintegrating it into the um, historic interiors is actually very important in creating that kind of quite carefully choreographed journey um, that Leighton and, and Aitchison created when, when you arrived at, at the house. Um, and the winter studio was added to the house by Leighton in um, 1889. And it was really added as a space for him to paint um, when the, there was limited daylight, essentially. Um, so during the Victorian era, obviously smog was a really big problem. Also, you have the short days and, and the bad weather in London during the winter. And so artists really struggled to get enough natural daylight to, to paint in. And if you've read any Victorian artist letters, they spend a huge amount of time moaning about the weather. So the winter studio was really a way of trying to combat that and um, provide Leighton with more time to, to work on his paintings. And so it's this kind of glass house structure that's attached to, to the main studio. And Leighton, in an interview, talked about how he was sort of painting in a whole new light once he created this winter studio. So it was a really important um, sort of practical space for him as an artist. And while the rest of the house was very, um, as Daniel was saying earlier, very public and, and lots of visitors would have come to the house and, and also there was lots of photographs of it in the press, um, the winter studio was much more of a sort of private practical working environment it's probably where he kept all of his artist materials and props um, and it would have really been set up for, for the kind of practical matter of creating a painting rather than a sort of showcase in the, in the way um, the main studio perhaps is um, and so in recreating that we um, commissioned a replica piece of furniture which 
and appears in earlier images of the studio and in descriptions of the wood studio, um, which has lots of kind of compartments and, and pigeonholes where he would have stored all his artistic equipment um, and kind of laid out all, all of his um, materials when he was working. The idea going forward is to add more of artist props and, and similar things to things he used in his paintings in that space to sort of further create that, that atmosphere. But we have added a collection of um, textiles, um, in particular Syrian um, dress, which um, later are very similar to, to pieces later used in, in his paintings and um, to help sort of create that atmosphere. So in the new, in the new wing, what we now have is a, a new reception space, which was occupying where our office used to be. The 1950s infill has gone entirely, and that's been replaced by a, a flexible cafe space, which has floor-to-ceiling glazing, which allows views much onto the garden, the large garden at the back of the museum, and, and much more integrates the, the garden into the museum itself, and allows views across to the other studio houses that Hannah was talking about earlier, because we want to much more make Leighton House the way into the discovery of that story and the phenomenon of the studio house being so characteristic of this, this period. And then there's a new piece of building which contains a helical staircase and a lift, and that gives access to all levels of the building, including a newly excavated basement that sits underneath the cafe space and actually extends out into the garden and that contains a, a drawings gallery so that was prompted by the fact of the museum as you you alluded to having we've got 700 sheets of Leighton's drawings from all phases of his life and career really and um, they've been part of the museum collections from really off from when it was first established but we had nowhere suitable to display them and so this gallery space means that they can be displayed there or selections of them in, uh, interspersed with uh, a program of changing uh, exhibitions and also at that basement level is a new collection store um, displays further displays about the holland park artists as well as the uh, toilets and cloakrooms and that links through to the basement of the historic house uh, which had all been converted into a learning center spaces that are, for the first time have dedicated spaces for um, schools and family uh, activities and the big commission that we've made in the new wing is um, a mural that uh, is 11 meters high painted onto the walls of the new staircase which Hannah um, coordinated with an artist called Shahzad Ghaffari and Hannah is a place to maybe talk about that commission and why we why we chose to do that um so the idea behind um the commission was um to introduce a new artwork into into these um new spaces at the museum and um, then in some way sort of reflected the the history of the house and the interiors that Leighton and Aitchison created in particular the Arab Hall but also sort of spoke to the future of, of the museum and um, we commissioned, um, as Daniel said, Shahzad Ghaffari, who's an Iranian artist based in Canada, to um, complete um, a mural in that staircase. 
um, which is called um, Oneness. And it really takes inspiration from the idea of the Arab Hall as this kind of combination of craftsmanship um, from lots of different cultural traditions. So um, in the Arab Hall, you have ceramics from um, Syria, from Turkey, from Iran, um, combined with um, woodwork from Egypt and, and also craftsmanship from um, makers in, in London from the Victorian era, including William de Morgan. So it's this real combination of, of different cultures um, and artistic traditions. And but together it creates this in, incredibly harmonious um, and beautiful space. And Shahzad took that as inspiration for oneness, um, which is all about this kind of coming together of different um, cultures in harmony as expressed in um, a poem called Who Am I? by the 13th century Persian poet um, Rumi. And oneness um, is taken from a line in that, in that poem. Um, and it's expressed in um, abstract and um, turquoise calligraphy, which runs all the way up the, the, the drum of the helical staircase. And Shahzad's also used lots of silvers within the background, which reflect the use of metallics um, in the historic house. Um, and also the other colors reference the, the historic house, such as oranges and brown tones in, in the basement which um, reflect the brickwork of, of the artist houses in, in this area. So it's really a response to the historic house, but also the idea of this kind of new moment in, in, the, museum's, in the museum's history. It's a spectacular staircase, and I think it's amazing to really have those kind of transitional spaces, those staircases, and make them part of that total work of art and something new. It's, yeah, it's amazing. We've talked there about um, drawings and you at the moment have a really lovely um, drawings at gold drawings exhibition of Evelyn de Morgan's work um, on display, which is open till the 27th of August. And so what are your other current and upcoming exhibitions you working on? Um, you mentioned about the staircase as well. And what other kind of contemporary commissions can we look forward to seeing in the future? Um, so uh, on the uh, 22nd of April, um, a new exhibition of um, work by Shahzad Ghaffari will open in, in the main exhibition gallery, um, and that's called Journey to Oneness, and it's really um, kind of placing um, that staircase commission in the context of, of her wider work, and it includes um, six paintings on loan from her own personal collection. So these are works which she's um, held on to because they have particular significance for, for her. So that exhibition um, really sort of showcases her, her inspirations and her kind of message in, in her artwork um, and explores the themes of um, poetry and spirituality, identity and, and feminism, which, which run through her paintings and which connect to um, oneness, that commission we were discussing at, at the museum. And that exhibition will run all through the summer into the, into the autumn. Um, and there are quite interesting parallels with the Evelyn de Morgan Gold Drawings exhibition, um, even though they're, they're working um, many, many years apart, they, I think, take inspiration from similar ideas in some ways, and also um, both use um, metallics in their works, again, in very different ways, but to express, I think, um, a sense of sort of spirituality within their, within their art. So there's interesting connections 
um, or more connections perhaps than you might think between, between the two artists. And we also have an exhibition opening in the historic house on the 27th of April, um, Hate, which is an exhibition of three um, contemporary textile pieces by artist uh, Noor Hajj, including um, one um, piece which has been produced by Noor with a group of uh, co-creators from the local area um, who have all taken inspiration from um, talismanic motifs within the house to create this um, collective artwork, which will be um, on display in the, the drawing room of the historic house from the 27th of, of April. And as part of that exhibition, Noor's created two um, pieces herself, again, in response to, to Leighton House and, and the interiors. Um, in particular, the, the Staircase Hall and, and the Arab Hall, and also the new um, textiles collection, um, which we've acquired, um, which I was discussing discussing earlier. So three um, very different but very exciting exhibitions um, to enjoy this spring. Wonderful. Um, I also just wanted to ask you quickly, Hannah, you mentioned um, an artist, Emily Barrington, earlier and a connection to Leighton House. And I was just wondering, it's just a personal interest because you mentioned her name, if you just tell me a bit about her connection to Leighton. Um, so Emily Barrington had a house on Melbury Road and she leased a house in between um, the Thornycroft family of sculptors and George Frederick Watts Studio House. And she became very involved with the artists that, that lived in the area. She was a pupil of Watts for some time um, and a close friend of his and also became friendly with Leighton as, as well. And she um, wrote both of their biographies and those texts are still hugely invaluable um, in researching both artists and include lots of um, their letters as well as her sort of personal recollections of them. Um, so they're hugely rich um, resources. She also chaired the, the Leighton House um, Committee, so she really led um, the, the early um, museum at Leighton House and, and really championed Leighton House becoming a, a museum. She was instrumental in acquiring lots of the early artworks that entered the museum's collection, including um, those 700 sheets of, of Leighton drawings. So she's a very important figure within the um, museum's history. Um, we also have two of her paintings, um, which show that she was really an artist of, of some skill. Um, previously, that's been a sort of side of her that's been overlooked in favour of her as a kind of author writing about these artists and also her association with Leighton House Museum. Her, her um, artwork has, has been sort of sidelined within those discussions, but recent conservation work we've had on, done on those paintings shows um, really her extraordinary skill as, as a painter as, as well. And those paintings were included in, in our reopening exhibition, which recently closed um, Artists and Neighbours, the Holland Park Circle. Thank you both so much for taking this time. And um, before we finish, is there anything that we haven't talked about that either of you wanted to, to mention or discuss? I think so. I think we've covered pretty much. <laughs> Thank you both. It just sounds, yeah, just incredible work that you're doing. I'll keep all my fingers crossed about the Alm Tadema um, painting for you. And in your future acquisition policy, it sounds like a really 
fascinating time to be at Leighton House. And for those listening who have visited before, it just sounds like there's, you know, incredibly new exhibitions and things going on for you to go and see. And if you haven't been before, I definitely recommend a visit if you're in London. Both Leighton House and Sanborn House are really fascinating looks at um, the artistic circles, different artistic circles, but in the uh, Victorian era. So yeah, thank you both for taking the time. It's been really brilliant to talk to you. We really appreciate it, the Graphite Society. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.